do you, um, do you ever wonder or worry um, that God is done with you? Do you ever think, you know, I think I've probably worn out all the grace there is for me, or uh, I'm just not living up to what I know God wants for me, or, or maybe he just feel like he, he doesn't show up, he doesn't talk, you feel distant. And so you just think, well, maybe God is done with me. I was having lunch with a, with a buddy who was actually at the 9 a.m. service, and uh, we were talking about how both of us, very similar, have this pattern of every couple years kind of getting in this spiritual funk, into this kind of depression where we start really doubting everything. And, uh, and, th- and that it stems from looking at our life and saying, okay, if I'm really following Jesus and if God is really mighty to save, if he really is able to transform me into the image of Christ for the sake of others, why am I not better than I am? Why am I still struggling? Why am I still sinning in that way? Um, And then that kind of thinking leads us into this kind of depression where we're just questioning everything because maybe God's just done with us or maybe he's not there or what, you know, like we can't make sense of the fact that, that we're not where we think we should be. So have you ever wondered or worried about God being done with you? That's the very place that we find God's people when the prophet Zechariah shows up on the scene. If you've been coming here over the summer, you've, you've gotten to hear from a lot of different speakers about the different prophets, and we've been, you know, we've been going out of order chronologically, but, but we've been trying to place it in context so you kind of know what's going on with God's people. So you know you had the, the, the kingdom of Israel uh, started with King Saul and then King David and King Solomon, and then they broke into two. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom all bad kings. Um, I mean, just, it was just awful. Up in the north, it was awful. In the southern kingdom, mostly bad kings. It was pretty awful. There were a few good ones. But during this time, God would send prophets to come to the people and say, hey, you're, you've forgotten who I am. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that I have called you to be a people that are a blessing to all nations. You're my display people to the world. You are living counter to what I had in mind when I thought you up. Repent and come back to me. This happened again and again and again. I mean, we're going through 12 minor prophets. So, so you see, like, over time, it just again and again and again. Well, Zacharias towards the end of, of the prophets. And uh, the timeline that we've been looking at um, all uh, summer, you can see the northern kingdom ends right after Hosea. The southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer um, to where the black turns to white. Um, but both of them, both, both kingdoms end, are, are taken captive by an enemy nation because of their continual uh, disobedience and turning from God. And so Zechariah comes at a time after the people of Israel have been living in captivity in, in Babylon. They've adopted a lot of the cultures from, from that Uh, place. Um, But now they've been invited back. They're allowed to go back into Israel. They're allowed to go back home. But they come back home pretty beaten up, pretty messed up, pretty pretty, uh, accustomed to a a certain way of living that's completely counter to, to what God has instructed them to. So I think you got people coming back thinking, all right, yeah, we're back home, but I'm pretty sure God's done with me. I'm pretty sure I've messed it up too bad. I mean, if you just look at their history, 
For hundreds of years, the prophets have been coming and saying, repent and turn back. And, and then, then they, they return back for just a little bit. And then another prophet has to come. So they've messed it up again and again and again. And so we find the people back home, but back home and feeling pretty crummy about themselves and thinking there's no way God could still love me, want anything to do with me, would use me. And then he sends Zechariah. And he sends Zechariah with a vision. Uh, and this is the vision. It's what we're going to look at today. It's found in Zechariah 3, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. So again, this is Zechariah's vision. Then he, he being God, showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. This is God's word. <clears throat> so we've got this vision given to a people that feel like they've messed it up pretty bad. And this vision is of a holy courtroom, the courtroom of God's law. And uh, immediately when you think about that, you think, oh man, that's, that's pretty terrifying. And listen, whatever you believe about the Bible and God and Jesus, um, uh, you know, you might, you might not be there. You might not believe that that's true, but all of us have a sense that we're on trial. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you believe. We all have a sense that we are going to stand before some kind of courtroom and be found lacking. We all feel that way. That's why many of us have that dream where we show up to a presentation or to school um, and we're, we're naked, right? That, that, that's what that dream's about. It's about showing up someplace that you're supposed to be and being not prepared, being not enough, right? It's why you sometimes dream uh, that you show up for a test and you, you didn't study and you don't even understand the math, right? And, and it's a terrifying dream. That that's taps into something that we all experience, and infomercials get this right so well. I, um, when I was in college, I was so excited to be in college because it was the first time I got to have a TV in my room um, and my parents wouldn't let me watch Friends. And so I was watching Friends in my room. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I loved that. And then I also, it was the first time I had a credit card. And um, late at night, there are so many infomercials on with so many good things. And... Um, they, they tap into it, right? Like they, they all are the same way. It starts off with, a, with an image of someone who you, who you think you look like, right? It's like the guy running down the beach with the dad bod and, you know, children are screaming and turning away and, 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 and you're like, and they're like, and this is you, but it doesn't have to be you, right? It's not who you really are. And then it shows another guy running down the beach who's supposed to be the same guy, but this time he's got like six pack abs and everyone's going like, oh, glory. You know, like it's like, and you're like, you can be this, right? And so in college, and this is not an exaggeration, I bought an ab roller, an ab dolly, an ab flex, and a steam buggy, uh, which had nothing to do with your abs, but if you saw the way it cleaned grout. Um, and so... Um, <laughs> So I spent hundreds of dollars on my abs, and to this day, I've never seen uh, one ab. But why, why does that work? 
Why does it work? Because, because the infomercial is tapping into something that we all feel that we're all on trial, that there's this standard of perfection and that if we're, if we're truly exposed, we're all gonna fall short. And so that's the image. This holy courtroom of God's law is where this takes place. And the first person we see is Joshua. He's the high priest. Now the high priest in Israel represented the people before God. So however the high priest looked to God, that's how the people looked to God. That's why in the Old Testament, there's so many laws about what the high priest had to do, the ritual bathing he had to go through, the type of clothing he had to wear. He had to do all this stuff in order to appear before God and and sometimes make a sacrifice, uh, atonement of sins for the people or to plead for the people. But, But there was a way in which he had to look in order to be acceptable to God. And right at the beginning of Zechariah's vision, we're told that Joshua is standing there in filthy rags. So the, so the Israelites hearing this, who, who already think God's done with them, they would have been like, oh man, this, this does not bode well for us. This, is not, this vision is not gonna end well for us because if Joshua represents us and he's standing before the holiness of God and he didn't even go through the ritual bathing and the cleaning and he's not wearing the proper clothes. In fact, he's covered in filth. And the actual Hebrew translation of the word filth is poop. So essentially, Joshua is standing before God's holiness in, in the courtroom of God's law covered in poop. And I don't know if you've ever been covered in poop, but I, um, when I was a new dad, um, I, I, for the first time, uh, uh, I was 23, and I lived in California, in Santa Monica, in this tiny little guest house behind someone's house. Uh, my wife was going back to work, so she was back uh, at work during the day, and then she'd get home, and I'd give her all of her, and I'd go wait tables at night. And, um, and so it was a real fun life. Um, and, um, and our little place was, it was so packed. Like everything was right next to each other. So our bed's here and then his bed's here. And then it's changing tables at the foot of our bed. And then we had a fan, like one of those oscillating fans right um, on the other side because we didn't have air conditioning. Um, and so everything, you're just, you're just there. You just have to turn around to like do everything. And um, so I'm being Mr. Mom for the first time. Um, and nobody told me that sometimes uh, babies have explosive poop and that, that they can shoot out like a cannon. And I did not know that. So me, a little 23-year-old, taking off the diaper of Oliver, lifting up his legs to kind of wipe him. And all of a sudden, I mean, like a geyser. I mean, it was so, so much, so much. Um, And the fan was going and the geyser hit the fan. And so poop just went everywhere, all over our bed, all over me, all over him. So it's not just an expression. It actually happens. And... um, and, and I'm just covered. That's the image. Joshua is standing there covered, filthy, disgusting. So the people would have been terrified. And then we see Satan. Now, Satan is interesting because he doesn't appear a whole lot in the Bible. But we, we, we get introduced to him at the very beginning of the story as the serpent, the one who whispers the lie to Adam and Eve that God doesn't really love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. In fact, he's a withholding God. The reason he doesn't want you to eat this fruit is because he knows you'll be all you can be if you do that. You'll be able to be like God. You won't have to depend on him anymore. You can be free. Um, so that's how we get introduced to him. Um, then, you know, he appears in the, in the story of Job. He appears... Um, in the, in the gospels, when, when Jesus is baptized, as he's about to start his ministry, he's tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan. The apostle Peter describes him as a roaring and devouring lion. The apostle John describes him as a murderer and the father of lies. But here in this vision, 
Satan takes on a totally different role. He takes on the role of the outraged prosecutor in the courtroom of God's holy law, which is fascinating to me, right? If Satan's the one who tempts us, if he's the one who's trying to convince us to do wrong, then all of a sudden, he is the one in the courtroom who says, look what they did. Do you see that? Now, Satan may be the father of lies, but when it comes to accusing us, he has plenty of truth on our side. One of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon, says, truly, dear friends, if Satan wants to accuse you, any page of our history, in fact, any hour of any day, will furnish him the material for his charges. So in this courtroom, you've got Joshua staying there filthy. You've got Satan staying there ready to accuse to bring all the charges against Joshua. And we've all heard his voice. Maybe when, um, when things are going wrong in your life, when things aren't turning out the way you thought, don't you hear in the back of your head, he's punishing you and you deserve it? Or maybe, uh, maybe you want to, to, to start a connect group or, or you've finally worked up the courage to talk about Jesus with your coworker or your friend or someone in your family. Don't you hear in the back of your mind, but listen, if they knew what you were really like, you hypocrite. Or maybe you go to pray because you really need God to show up and, and don't you hear, why would he listen to you? You only talk to him when you need something. Or maybe when you fall into that same sin again, that one that you thought you'd work so hard to get over, don't you hear, how could you? After all that Jesus has done for you, how dare you do that again? One of the things that's, that's mind-boggling to me is that an image that I saw as a second grader on a playground that after I looked at it brought a lot of shame and guilt to me, that image in great detail can come back to mind like that. I can't remember what I preached on last week, but I can remember that image. Who's bringing that stuff up? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the accuser. It's the accuser. God isn't our accuser. Satan is. In the story Les Mis, if you've seen the play or the, or the movie or read the book, um, you know, you've got Jean Valjean who, uh, who, who has served some prison time for, for, uh, for stealing bread for his family, um, but he's, he's repented and he's out free. But the, the police officer, Javert, doesn't believe that he's fully paid uh, for uh, his sin, that he's truly repented. And so the whole story is really about the pursuit of Javert uh, to, 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 to get justice out of Jean Valjean. But in Javert's obsession with justice, we see him transformed into the villain of the story. Justice without mercy is not God, it's Satan. So the question is, and this is kind of a side point, but I think it's an important one for us to wrestle with. Has your zeal for justice ever turned you into the villain in someone else's story? Have you ever been the mouthpiece for the accuser? I, um, I had, I'm going to talk about Oliver a lot in this sermon, so don't tell him. Um, I'll change it for Herndon. But um, um, Oliver, he's my 14-year-old. He's the baby uh, in the first story. Um, he, uh, we, things are just, it's hard parenting a middle schooler, okay? And an almost high schooler. And, uh, and, and so I had, I had scheduled to have breakfast with him. Scheduled, it sounds very official. But uh, I said, Oliver, we're going to go breakfast um, this morning. And uh, and I really just wanted to talk about a lot of stuff. And I started by telling him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how angry I've been lately at him, how um, 
just how I've been acting and I, and I feel like it hasn't been helpful um, to our relationship and stuff. And he goes, phew. He said, dad, ever since you said we had to have breakfast, I've been like playing all the different ways you would start this conversation, but I never thought you'd start by saying you're sorry. Um, and then he proceeded to tell me like all the ways he had played it out in his head. Um, and it was very clear to me that I've become my son's accuser. So parents, especially, are you a mouthpiece for the accuser? Justice without mercy is never God. It's always Satan. So in this courtroom, you've got Joshua standing there in filthy rags. You've got Satan standing there as the prosecutor, ready to accuse. But there's one more person in the vision, and uh, it's the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord's a fascinating um, character in the Bible because he appears throughout the Old Testament and then he vanishes in the New Testament. And whenever the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, he speaks for God. And not only that, he speaks of God in the first person. So most scholars and theologians believe that when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, what you're seeing is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus before he put on flesh. That's what you're seeing. So in this courtroom, you've got Joshua, Filthy, covered in poop. You've got Satan standing there as the prosecutor. And then you've got Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who does anything in this vision. No one else does anything. The only active participant in the vision is Jesus. You've got Joshua standing there filthy, not doing anything. You've got Satan standing there ready to accuse, but he doesn't. And then you've got Jesus. And Jesus does three things in this vision. He chooses, he cleans, and he clothes. The very first thing Jesus does, it's almost like he looks past Joshua, right at Satan, and he says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Is not this man like a burning stick snatched from the fire? Essentially, he looks at Satan, he says, you have nothing to bring here. It's almost as if Jesus is reminding Satan of a battle that had been fought before time began. Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 1, 4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's as if Jesus is looking at Satan and he says, You can't tell me anything about them that I don't know, but I already chose to love them. I already chose them. Listen, if God's people were dependent on their own faithfulness, there would have been an end to them long ago. But their hope and their rest lies completely in the immutable character and faithfulness of an everlasting, unchangeable God who chose them. And why did he choose them? Well, Deuteronomy 7 tells us, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Essentially, God's saying, it's not because of what you had to bring to the table. It's not because you were the most powerful. In fact, you were the weakest. It's not because you had the most number. In fact, you have the fewest. I chose you just because I chose you. When, uh, when Oliver was a baby, he... Uh, like two or something, he loved to, uh, at bath time, ask me why I loved him. And I've told this story a lot because it's one of my favorite stories. But uh, he, um, 
he would come up, I would, he would say, why do you love me? And I'd say, why do you think I love you? And then he would come up with different things that he thought made him lovable. Is it because I'm so handsome? You're very handsome. No, that's not why I love you. Is it because I climb really high? Nope, I love you, but, but no. Um, is it because I'm so brave? Yes, you're very brave, but no, that's not why I love you. Is it because I'm so obedient? Definitely no. Um, <laughs> And then he would act like so upset and annoyed and he would go, then dad, why do you love me? And my response would always be, because you're mine. Just because you're mine. Going back to the question I asked at the beginning, have you ever wondered or worried if God is done with you? He's not. You're still here. He chose you because he loved you and he loved you because he chose you. He loves you just because you're his. The past is no barrier to the future where God's grace is concerned. There's no barrier. So that's the first thing. Jesus chooses Joshua. He rebukes Satan, he chooses Joshua. Then he cleans Joshua, tells him he takes away his sin, and then he clothes him in rich garments. Now it's great to be forgiven, to receive a pardon, to experience the mercy and the grace of being cleansed. Uh, But there's something so much more happening here because if all Jesus did was clean him up and say, all right, I've taken away your sin, what that would mean for Joshua and God's people is that now they're free to leave the courtroom of God's law guilt-free, clean slate, start new. That would be wonderful. But Jesus takes it a step further. After he cleans him, it says he puts fine garments on him. So what does that mean? It means that God's people and you and I are not only free to leave God's courtroom, God's holiness, free of guilt, but we're also free to stay in his presence. That now there is nothing we can do that would make us unacceptable in his sight. If Jesus is the one who is putting on the rich garments, they're garments that cannot be soiled. Now, how can that be? Because that doesn't make sense. You can't just overlook sin and brokenness. And if people continue to sin, like you can't just say like, it's okay, right? How, how can that be? Well, Jesus, uh, when he walked the earth, he told lots of stories. And there's one parable that he told there's several parables that he told that are very hard to read and upsetting, and you think, what? Um, but, but this one is especially so, I think, um, where Jesus tells the story about a wedding feast that's happening, and none of the guests show up. And so the, um, uh, the, the king who's throwing the wedding feast tells the servants, hey, go out in the street and just invite anyone. Anyone can come to this wedding feast if they're willing. Um, and so they do. The servants go out in the street, and then the party's happening, and the, the room, the banquet hall, is filled with people, street people, enjoying this wedding banquet. But then Jesus says the king notices one guy, one guy in this room full of people, unfitly dressed. Now that's, and, and, and the king is outraged. He, he, he feels extreme rage and he has the man thrown out into the darkness. Jesus says where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. And you read that story and you're like, what in the world? Like, why, this guy didn't know he was going to a wedding that day. None of the people did. They're all street people. Like, why does it matter that this guy, of course this guy's not gonna be dressed appropriately. Well, when the, when the guests were invited, the king obviously provided them the proper attire. All they had to do was put it on. So all the people in there are wearing the proper wedding attire, but this one dude. But as I hear that story, 
I think oftentimes we can think, all right, is that, God, is that Jesus giving us a warning? Like we better, we better make sure we're not that one dude. And, and probably there is something to that. But I think when Jesus told that story, he was thinking about himself, that Jesus was gonna choose to be that one dude. Because you see, Jesus could clothe Joshua in rich garments because Jesus would put on Joshua's filthy garments on the cross. Jesus was gonna stand before the courtroom of God's law covered in our sin so that we could be covered in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to become sin, to put on our sin. Why? So that you and I might become the righteousness of God. See, the reason that you and I can not only leave God's courtroom free of guilt, but the reason you and I can stay is because Jesus clothed us. He clothed us with a righteousness that cannot be soiled. So we've got Joshua, filthy rags, Satan, prosecuting attorney. So what does that make Jesus? Our defense attorney. Jesus becomes our advocate in this vision and he sets up an infallible defense because Jesus isn't going before the judge and pleading and begging for grace, begging the judge to show us mercy, which is how I've always felt my Christian life. I felt like, you know, I try real hard and then I mess up and then I think, oh man, Jesus is gonna have to go and he's gonna have to say, hey, God the Father, um, Zach, he did that thing again, but you know, boys will be boys. Can we just can we show him grace one more time? That's not the case. In this vision, Jesus as our defense attorney isn't going before the judge begging for grace. He's demanding justice. He's showing his nailed, scarred hands and he's demanding justice because it would be unjust of a holy God to take payment for the same sin twice. You see, when Jesus took the punishment for our sin, the case was closed. It cannot be reopened. It, 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 is, it is done. At the cross, justice and mercy are forever linked. They cannot be separated. As the prophet Isaiah said of Jesus, the coming savior, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. His punishment secured our peace. So is God done with you? His punishment secured our peace. Have you messed it up too bad. His punishment secured our peace. Can you ever be clean again? His punishment secured our peace. But wait a second. I did. I wait. You don't know. I did. His punishment secured our peace. The whole story of the Bible is leading up to Jesus on the cross and teaching us that nothing we can do that, that we're, that in fact, we are so bad that the only thing that can make us right again is the death of God's own son, but also so loved that he chose to do it. So you and I, all of us might need to repent today, but it's not maybe what you think you need to repent of. We need to repent of our refusal of the righteousness of Christ. We need to repent of doubting God because of our own sinfulness. We need to repent of thinking that our sins are too big. We need to repent of thinking that we have a God who could ever be done with us. 
Martin Luther, the great reformer said, what is it about our pride that makes us believe that anything we have or will do cannot be covered by the blood of God's own son? His punishment secures our peace. The apostle John at the end of his life would write in 1 John 2, my brothers and sisters, I write to you so that you will not sin, but when you do sin, know that we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin and not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. We have a defense attorney with an infallible defense. Martin Luther, that great reformer, um, he was obsessed with sin and, uh, and he was constantly worried that, uh, that he was wrong and that, that maybe this whole grace thing, uh, if, if, if it required more than grace, he knew he wasn't gonna be in. Um, even though he wrote things like sin boldly and stuff like he was constantly worried you know, that, that, uh, that his sin would disqualify him. Uh, but he went back and back to God's word. He went back and back to the cross. He said, you have to preach the gospel to yourself daily or you'll forget it. Um, and he became convinced that it really is, it's all wrapped up in what Jesus has done for us. Um, and after he nailed the 95 thesis to that door in Germany, a lot of people wanted him dead. Um, and then he, he spoke it at something where he really spoke out against the church at the time. People really wanted him dead. So he went into hiding in a place called Wartburg Castle. And while he was there, he was all alone. Um, he wrote a letter to his best friend, Philip Melanchthon. He wrote this letter on May 24th, 1521. And in this letter, he described a spiritual depression that he had been in, this kind of funk that he was in where he just felt this weight, where he was doubting everything. And he said, he broke out of it because one night he was asleep and he had this dream that was so real where Satan was standing before him. And he said, I could feel his presence. I mean, I felt the weight of it. And he said, Satan was kind of standing over him as he was in his bed and he had this long scroll where on it he had listed, on it were listed all of Martin Luther's sins. And he said, Satan just started going through them one by one, just repeating them to him. And he said, it just got more and more intense until at last he could not stand it anymore. And he woke up and he screamed, it's all true, Satan. And many more sins, which are known only to God, but write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses me from all my sin. And then in a fit of like, you know, just energy. He grabs the inkwell off his writing desk. He hurls it at where he saw Satan, who was of course not there. He hurls it at the wall. The inkwell shatters and leaves a spot. And today you can actually go to Wartburg Castle and see that ink spot. Have you correctly identified whose voice is accusing you? If you haven't believed in Jesus, I wouldn't want to stand in that courtroom of God's law without him as my defense attorney. But if you have, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, I will not condemn. So the next time the accusations come and they will come, say to the accuser, you got me. It's all true. And it's actually worse than you think it is. And then turn to look at Jesus, your advocate, your defense attorney, the one who chose you, who cleans you, and who has clothed you in his righteousness. Smile and say, I'm so glad it's all about grace. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you for this vision. I thank you for the way this vision has pulled me out of a spiritual depression time and time again. I thank you for the truth in it of the gospel. Father, I pray uh, that that truth would penetrate all of our hearts. And I don't know where everyone's at. I don't know where everyone's at in, in knowing who you are or, think, or what they think about you. But God, I want them to know the God who saves. The God who in Jesus comes after us, who, who takes on our sins so that we can have his righteousness. Father, may that, may that truth penetrates our hearts so deeply that we can honestly look and see where we've been an accuser to others, where we've been a mouthpiece, where, where we have become a villain in someone else's story. Father, may the gospel penetrate our hearts so deeply today that we can move towards restoration in those relationships because that will bring you glory. Father, we pray all of this in the name of our advocate and our savior and our righteousness in Jesus Christ's name, amen.